First question, since Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all one, why don't all three of them know the time of Jesus' coming? Only the Father? Question mark. So this is referring to a text in the New Testament where Jesus said to his disciples, no one knows the day the hour, um, not the angels, not the Son, just the Father in heaven. That The time that Jesus said that was when he was on earth and was limited to live a life as a human being with the abilities of a human being. Uh, so that was at that point in time. It's not where Jesus is now. In heaven, there's no doubt in my mind that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all have the knowledge of when that day is going to happen. But uh, so th- uh, that was just, it's a good text and it's a good point to give some evidence that Jesus as a human being had re- re- limited his access to his divine abilities. Uh, and there's one example of evidence that he did that and lived as a human being. So that's a, that's a good point to point out. But no, in heaven, they all know. What is a design law explanation of Exodus 4, 24 to 26, which basically they've quoted at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses feet with it. Surely you are uh, a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. Uh, so the Lord let him along. And, and of course, the, the Lord did kill him there. So what's a design law explanation of this? It's all about context. It's all about setting. First question to ask, do we believe God knows the end from the beginning? And that he foreknew before these events exactly how it would play out. In other words, he knew what Moses' wife would do and Moses would not be killed. Then if we believe, and I, do, I believe that, uh, if, we, if God then foreknew, then God knew before he even acted that he was not going to kill Moses there. This was not about God coming to kill Moses. It was about something else. Second question to ask, if God had killed Moses there, would that have been first death or second death? It would have been first death. And first death is not punishment for sin. For the punishment for sin is eternal death, and that doesn't come until after the judgment at the end of the thousand years. So even if this were to happen, it wouldn't be punishment for sin. Death would be for some other purpose. So what's going on here? And this is context. Moses was called by God to fulfill a very important and specific role. Moses was to stand in the place of Jesus to the people, in the place of God to people. He was enacting in the role that Jesus has with the Father. As Jesus went into the councils in heaven to plan out the plan of salvation and left those councils and came to earth to deliver the people from sin, Moses went into the councils with God at the burning bush and other places and left those councils and then went and confronted um, Pharaoh to deliver the people from bondage of slavery. And Jesus left heaven and confronted Satan and delivered us from the bondage of sin. And um, Moses would go into the councils after they left Egypt and leave God's presence and set up the sanctuary as Jesus left heaven and set up the true temple, uh, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days, uh, Jesus said. And so Moses was coming to fulfill a very important mission to actually represent Jesus as a role model. And he couldn't be a role model if he was not in harmony with all God's plans, covenants, and instructions, meaning the covenant he had already given through Adam. Uh, He would misrepresent that disobedience and not listening to God was a way you could go forward, and it was untrue. And so God came to him for the purpose of symbolically demonstrating that if Moses didn't want to take this role and didn't want to represent God, then God would certainly allow him to remove himself from the stage play that he was about to enact and put him to sleep until the resurrection. But uh, Moses, in fact, his wife intervened, and Moses was uh, allowed to stay on the pl- on the stage and became a close friend of God, as you know, um, and then teach the very important lessons. So that, that's how I understand all that.
You have to see a larger reality than just those texts taken in isolation. And the problem when people read the Bible is they'll lift a text like Exodus 4, 24 to 26 in isolation, not understanding anything of the circumstances, the great controversy, the, uh, the first or second death experiences, God's foreknowledge. None of these elements are brought in unless they draw very, very human-like conclusions. Well, God was mad. He was going to kill. Somebody did something. He didn't. Wow, we can't trust God. And this is how a lot of people read Scripture. Don't read it that way. Why does God call it a new command when he tells his disciples to love one another just before his crucifixion in John 13? Uh, this is a very good question. And I encourage you to go to our website, go to our blogs. Um, you can either hit the blogs and scroll back to November 2 and November 9, where I wrote two blogs, Love a New Command, part one, and Love a New Command, part two, where I explore this uh, at great length. And I encourage you to avail yourself of that, that resource. I think it will answer your questions in greater detail than I could do here. Thank you so much for your explanation of the first and second deaths. You have, you may have answered this, and I missed it, but at the very end, when the wicked are about to attack the city, uh, the fire rains down. Is that God destroying them? That is God. And this is this is the the difference between imposed law and design law. In the imposed law system, the ruling authority must use power to inflict punishment. In the design law, the creator system, God uses power to hold at bay the punishment that comes from breaking the law. And as, as soon as Adam sinned, God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. God has been using his power to veil his life-giving glory, to restrain and hold at bay what sin does. And when the fire comes down, God ceases using his veiling power to restrain his life-giving glory. And his life-giving glory comes down through the city, out through the gates. And, and or if you like the text in Daniel, the Ancient of Days takes his seed and 10,000 times 10,000. And rivers of fire come out from before him and 10,000 times 10,000 thousand and thousands of thousands stand in this fire. This fire is not harmful. We will stand and live the righteous in it forever. And so God is not using power to inflict harm. God ceases using the power that he's been using to restrain the harm that sin is doing. And thus they have, they enter into the fullness of infinite love and truth. And they now are aware of all of the evil that still resides in them. And it torments their soul. And they ultimately beg for the mountains to fall on them and hide them. And they give up their ghost so to speak, their spirit, and they die. And it's, if you read this in Great Controversy, I think it's page 531, I think. It might not be the right quote. No, it's not 531. It's, oh, I can't remember the reference, uh, where Ellen White says um, that the death of the wicked is voluntary with themselves and just and merciful on the part of God. And and this is what, what happens. So no, he's not actually causing the death. He, he has, uh, he's allowing them to reap what they've sown. And that's what sin does. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. Or as Galatians says, those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature, not from God, reap destruction. When you explained about God being in control of what God is in control of and asking about the rape victim, I was struck with a thought. Probably, they put parentheses, probably from Satan. If I was being raped and my husband walked in and knelt beside me and took my hand and said, it's all right, I'm here with you. I will never leave you, unquote. I would believe he is either unable or unwilling to help me. Either way, I have lost all confidence and affection for him. How can I not feel this way about God when bad things happen? What a very emotionally powerful um, um, story you presented there. And the first question is, what law lens are we asking the question through in the scenario of the, that is presented? 
What if you could see the future as God sees the future? And God, knowing you are such a trusted friend of his, knows that after this assault against you, you will respond with grace, mercy, godly forgiveness, and through your witness, your rapist will be saved for eternity. But in God's foreknowledge, no other intervention reaches the rapist's heart for salvation. That you will be like Corey Ten Boone, who suffered terribly in the Nazi concentration camps, but through her witness, she won even one of her Nazi guards to salvation. If you knew that, would you then recognize that God had something larger in mind than simply your protection from that moment? Or what if you knew that you were like Job? God, God was calling you to the witness stand of the universe to say of him what is right, that you would love and trust God even when bad things happen. And one more perspective on you and your husband in the moment. To slightly shift from the rape, what if instead of a rape, you were being assaulted by a 19-year-old drug addict who was high and out of his mind seeking drugs and he was threatening you with a knife to give him money so he could buy drugs and your husband walked in in that moment and your husband had a gun what would you want your husband to do shoot the nine-year-old 19-year-old and save you or or some other intervention that would put you at risk to being harmed if you say shoot the nine-year-old what happens if i tell you though that the 19-year-old that is high and threatening you is your firstborn son what would you want your husband to do now? Would you want your husband to kill your son in a state of absolute rebellion and sinful living? Or would you want him to take an action that would leave you at physical risk, but would allow time for your son's brain to detox and him to come to repentance and salvation? What would you prefer? Well, isn't the rapist in the scenario one of God's children too that he wants to bring to repentance and save? How would you want God to answer that circumstance? Peace and blessings. What do you have to say about the statement? The Ten Commandments are a transcript of God's character, and the Fourth Commandment is the only commandment that will last through ceaseless eternity. Let's break those into two. Ten Commandments, a transcript of God's character. Absolutely true. And what is a transcript? If we took a, some of your skin cells, we could go to a lab and we could isolate the DNA and we could get your specific DNA sequence and we could lay it out on paper. And we could say, this is a transcript of you. It would be true, wouldn't it? But looking at the DNA sequence, we might be able to know based on the DNA, your hair color and your eye color, um, how tall you'll grow to be, uh, whether you're at risk for this disease or that disease. We can know lots of things about you from the transcript, but from the transcript, do we know the sound of your laugh? Do we know the warmth of your hug? Do we know the patience that you present in difficult circumstances, the kindness you show to a neighbor? Do we know really what you look like and who you are from the transcript? So the Ten Commandments are a transcript of the principles of love, but we don't really know what God is like by the transcript. We know what God is like by the law being lived out in human flesh in Jesus Christ. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That is the true revelation of God. Not, so there's truth that there's a transcript there, but it's a limited expression 
of who God is, the full expression of who God is, is in Jesus Christ. Now, regarding the fourth commandment is the only commandment that will last through ceaseless, ceaseless ages. So are you saying in heaven we'll have adultery and we'll have murder and we'll have false witness and we'll have covetousness and we'll have worshiping of false idols and making images and sins passing down? No, I, I don't think so. I think we're going to have the reality that we will only worship the true God in heaven, which is going to be important. We will not make graven image and we'll not take the Lord's name in vain. We'll only glorify him in all we do. And we will honor our mothers and fathers and we won't murder, we won't steal, and we won't bear false witness, and we won't covet. So all of the law will be lived out in heaven, won't it? Yeah, they'll all be lived out in heaven. So I don't get this idea that only the fourth commandment will be existing through the ceaseless ages. They will all be existing because we will all be living out the principles of love and how we love God and love others. But the idea of the fourth commandment, the reason people say that is because the fourth commandment is special in that it was added after sin. Prior to sin, the other commandments were already being lived out. Prior to Lucifer's rebellion, they were worshiping the only true God. They weren't taking his name in vain. They weren't making false images. Prior to his rebellion, they would honor each other, even though they didn't have mothers and fathers. They wouldn't bear false witness prior to his rebellion. They, they wouldn't commit adultery uh, in betrayal, and they didn't betray God with spiritual adultery prior to his, uh, his rebellion, and they didn't covet each other. So all the other commandments um, in principle, the principles of love were being lived out by the angels, but there was no Sabbath. The Sabbath didn't exist. Why? Why didn't the Sabbath exist before Lucifer's rebellion? Well, there's no need. The questions hadn't risen. Satan hadn't lied about God. So there's no need for God to give this special demonstration of his methods in action where he presented truth during creation week, creating a new planet, operating on his design law of love and delegate and, and sharing procreative abilities with a new uh, cre creation and designating dominion to govern a new world to creatures. He was demonstrating that he is not selfish. He shares powers. He gives powers, as many powers as he possibly can to a creature. And then after giving all this evidence, he leaves free. I rest my case. You've heard the allegations of Lucifer. You've seen the evidence I've given. Now the universe take 24 hours out. I rest. And what does the Sabbath prove? That God rest. He stopped using power. The Sabbath is evidence that God does not use power to force his way. God does not inflict punishment. God does not coerce. God leaves beings free to decide themselves. And the question was that God is a power monger and a punisher. And the Sabbath proves that a lie. You know, he doesn't punish. He leaves free. And thus, for all eternity future, since the question is to be raised, the Sabbath will be be kept as a memorial that to remind us all we are actually free in God's kingdom. He doesn't use power to punish sinners. It's really a great, great story. What is your position on fasting? In Matthew 6, Jesus tells us when you pray, when you give, when you fast, should it be part of a Christian life like praying and giving? Are you missing a blessing when, when we fail to fast? So, so I think fasting is an absolute important part of our um, health and wellness. I tend to fast most days, 18 hours a day. I have my last meal uh, around 6 p.m. and I don't eat again until noon the next day. And so I tend to fast 18 hours a day. Fasting um, it impacts the, the, the microbiome in your gut. 
Um, the microbiome create all types of neurotransmitters. It is well known that when you fast, it heightens your mental focus and awareness. I don't know if you've ever eaten a big meal, but you're you're more likely to be lethargic, tired, fatigued, can't concentrate as well. Fasting helps help our focus. And this is often why people fast in times of emotional and spiritual crisis, because they want to enhance their mental faculties, ability to wrestle through the problem, uh, find truth, uh, spiritually reach out and connect with God. Uh, fasting also uh, improves one's longevity and physical health. It reduces uh, insulin resistance, improves the immune system. So there's lots of physiological benefits and cognitive benefits from intermittent fasting. So yes, I think it is a is a principle of physiologic health to do so. I, I uh, and, and uh, let's see. Jesus had tears in his voice when he spirit led shared his concerns with those holding on to lies that were toxic to them and their witness. What are your thoughts on how we can do the same and not come across as holier than thou? You know, I think that is a great insight. I think sometimes I struggle with that because, um, and of course, we are presuming Jesus had tears in his voice. That's a presumption. And it's also written in some places, um, but we weren't there to hear it. It would be lovely to hear his voice. Uh, I, I think that he had great compassion, but... Um, you know, he did it in such a way in the temple when he overturned the money changers' tables that the children didn't run away fearful. So there's certainly something special about how he did it. Um, but sometimes maybe he spoke with tears in a voice with also great hurt and great frustration over their stubbornness of heart. And, and you read the woes that Jesus called out upon them in Matthew and, and, and how he called them uh, you know, whitewashed sepulchers full of dead men's bones and so forth. So he spoke some truth. I do always think it was in love, and and uh, I don't think he was uh, coming across holier than now, but they certainly didn't appreciate it regardless of the time. And I think it has to do with love in our heart. Um, and if we have a love in our heart for people, then that love generally comes across. But sometimes I can tell you with my grandkids, and I, I saw one of my grandkids about to stick their hand in a fan, and uh, and I, I had to re and I reacted very, very quickly and yelled at them <laughs> to stop because they're about to stick their fingers in a in an open fan. And uh, and to my grandchild, I, I sounded very angry. <laughs> it scared them. I was not angry with them. I was terrified for them and I was trying to protect them. So so because I had such deep love and concern for them. And so even when we have love and concern, sometimes we might not come across at the instant in that moment with loving and serving, we might come across angry. But I think that's a great question. I think we need to continue to pray about that. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your love. And we do want the heart of Jesus so that whatever we present these things, we're doing it in the most gracious way we possibly can. We pray in your holy name. Amen.